Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to aspiring writer and artists and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field. Today, I'm happy to welcome back a guest who has taught at Writers of the Future since 1993 and been a judge since 1995, Kevin J. Anderson. He has published more than 165 books, 56 of which have been national or international bestsellers. He has written numerous novels in the Star Wars, X-Files, and Dune universes, as well as unique steampunk fantasy novels, Clockwork Angels and Clockwork Lives, written with legendary rock drummer Neil Peart, based on the concept album by the band Rush. His most recent novels are Stake, Killzone, and Spine of the Dragon. And I got to say, Killzone was really, really in- intense. I love that one there. Welcome back, Kevin. Huh. Glad to be back on. I, I, you're rattle, rattling off some of these things. Go, I've really been teaching and judging since like 1993 or so. I know. That uh, was crazy when I read that. Like, wow. Uh, well, you know, this, is, this has been, Writers of the Future Contest has been like a huge part of my entire professional career because I was a newbie author submitting to the contest when I was, uh, whenever, like 1985 or something when it started out. So it, this is this is not just a jump in and uh, which podcast am I on this afternoon? This is something that I, I feel very proud of and supportive of. And obviously, if you're listening to this podcast, you you know what the Writers of the Future contest is. But it it is truly one of my favorite things every year to come and, and not just the award ceremony, but to be helping to teach the other winners, the writer's workshop that they give, because it's, uh, I, I feel it's just kind of important that, that I've made all these mistakes. And so I got to help the next people not to make the same mistakes. And I, I'm not saying I caused a scandal or anything, but you know, when you're, when you're a writer, you, you try different things and you learn different things. And I think it's, it's kind of crucial for you to try to share your knowledge and, and help somebody else. Absolutely. And it's kind of interesting, too, that a lot of today's top authors in the genre of science fiction and fantasy are either winners or they proed out as as contestants in the Rise of the Future uh, competition. You entered, what, 17, 20, however many times before you proed out? <laughs> I don't remember how many times. I just remember yeah. trying to desperately trying to go to that workshop before I got disqualified but yeah. so now, I, now I help teach the workshop so I go to it anyway and and you know as a as a teacher this people don't don't really understand this that so I'm a I'm a big best selling author 23 million books in print and all this stuff but when I'm teaching students it's like oh it's clarifying things for me so that I'm improving my own craft and my own techniques by by explaining like world building to somebody else it helps me. It's like a refresher course for me. And so I can improve my own work as well. Yeah. It's, um, I mean, it's, it's very much appreciated. And you and, and Rebecca, your wife have that great seminar that you teach on the business of writing, which I think is also how you ended up with uh, superstars too, because you hit a, an area that isn't often touched upon and definitely in most, um, from what I've talked to from other students who have taken writing classes in colleges and universities, isn't addressed. But that's something I think you make a point of addressing, isn't it, in your master's program? Yeah. So my uh, one of my philosophies, because there are so many people that will teach you how to describe a scene or how to build a character, and, and that's all very valuable stuff, but it's not, it's not hard to find that kind of information. But as 
Rebecca and I became more and more successful, we started to realize that a lot of our colleagues that we try to get business advice from somebody, we'd say, well, what did you do when this 1099 came in or whatever? And they just look at us with blank stares and go, I don't understand those things. I just signed the contracts and never read them. And I go, that's, that's not a very good business uh, approach to be taking in. So uh, we started uh, for a long time giving like seminars at, at Dragon Con and other places of just how to be a a professional, how to have a professional and business mindset. I think that's the same seminar we've taught at the Writers of the Future workshop for oh, 20 years or something like that. That's kind a of lot of years. We do, yeah. yeah. And as we and a bunch of our friends became very successful uh, as as writers, uh, it was me and Rebecca, and but also uh, David Farland and Brandon Sanderson and Eric Flint. We would ask each other advice about you know, what do you do with this IP question? And, and what about this copyright issue? And, and if you incorporate, what do you do with this? And I understand this is a little bit high-end stuff, but we thought this was the kind of information that people should be thinking about. I mean, as a writer, you should plan for success, not for failure. And so we started, uh, well, my pandemic has kind of messed everything up because right now this week, we would be teaching our our 12th Superstars Writing Seminar in Colorado Springs. Uh, so that's been postponed a year. But that, that's three days of just full-on business advice, career advice, copyright, contracts, all that kind of stuff. And that proved to be extremely popular. Like I said, we've got 12 years worth of it that we're doing. But my big thing right now, which I'd, I'd like to talk about a bit, is uh, a few years ago, I was hired by Western Colorado University to put together a graduate program in publishing so that you can get a Master of Arts degree in publishing. And there's always been a, a poetry MA degree in genre fiction and um, nature writing and screenwriting and things. But I created this whole new program so that you can get your, your MA in publishing. I've done a lot of teaching as in workshops and helping other writers, but I haven't had any real background in how do you put together a day-to-day course and a plan your syllabus for the semester and, and assignments and grades and all that kind of stuff. But because I have so much experience in it that they really gave me a lot of carte blanche to build the program that I thought would be most useful. And right now there are there are a handful of other publishing master's degree programs uh, at different universities, but they've been in existence for quite a while. And and the fact that I started mine from scratch allowed me to build something that is very relevant to the modern publishing world, which, as I'm sure most of your listeners have noticed, is dramatically different from what it was, say, 10 years ago. All the indie publishing, the do-it-yourself audiobooks and ebook publishing and your own cover design and and contractor services and freelance editors and all these things that if you were getting into publishing 15 years ago or so you would go to one of the major publishers in New York because they were almost all in New York and sell the book through your agent and then the publisher would just do everything. They'd have copy editors, they'd have developmental editors, they'd have marketing departments, they'd have cover designers, they they just have do everything for you. And you, the author, could sit back and write your next book. 
you might hear this wistful tone in my voice because I kind of liked that. That was the best way of doing it. But that isn't the way it works anymore. And more and more of your effort as an author comes into doing your own publishing. Or if you can't find a publisher for the brilliant book that you just did, well, then you might want to publish it yourself or go to a mid-range publisher. And so I just kind of sat down and I brainstormed with with my wife, Rebecca, and talked to some other uh, successful traditionally published writers and successful indie writers. And I just developed this uh, grad program which is evenly balanced. In fact, it's literally broken up into two course tracks, one on traditional publishing and one on indie publishing. And so we teach everybody about copyrights and contracts and agents and the different kinds of editors and cover design and interior design and and how to market your books when they come out. And also because I wanted I prefer pragmatic stuff. I don't want you to learn esoteric stuff about angels dancing on on the heads of a pin. I, I want you to come out of getting a degree with knowing what you're doing. And so their thesis project, their, their master's thesis project, uh, they have two of them. One is a group project and one is a, a solo project. And we, because this program caused a lot of excitement among a lot of uh independent writers and publishers and some of the industries that support them, uh, a big company called draft to digital which is a, a great gateway for uh, indie writers to get their books out there, draft to digital provided us the funding so that we could build and create our own original professional anthology. And so the students, they, they meet in the summertime and they brainstormed what anthology they wanted to do. And last year's a book was called Monsters, Movies, and Mayhem, about basically science fiction fantasy stories tied together with, with the movies somehow. And they wrote up the guidelines for submissions. They sent the call for submissions out to all the different markets and, and listings and things. They got hundreds of stories submitted to them through the slush pile, and they read the slush pile, and they weeded out the really bad ones, and they settled out on the good ones. And then they they had to argue over which ones to buy because they had a budget of how much money they could spend. And and then they had to write all the rejection letters and then they wrote all the contracts. And each one of the students was assigned a handful of the stories that they copy edited. They worked with the authors and then they, they designed the cover. They put the book together. And then when it came out the year later, uh, as sort of a grand graduation present for, it was supposed to be a big book signing party, but because of the pandemic, they didn't meet in person. And then they released the book. And let's see, Publishers Weekly gave it a starred review, and that was all, all great news. And then the current group of students, they've got a new one called Unmasked, and they're they're working on that now. They've got all the copy editing back, and they're just working on the cover now, and that'll be released this next July. And so for their, their solo project is a similar thing, they are going start to finish to recreate and reissue a fine edition of an old public domain classic, like a Jules Verne book or a Bram Stoker book or an H.G. Wells book or something like that. They'll find something that's out of print and they'll, they'll solicit some, some famous person to write a forward to it. And then they acquire the text, they proofread it, 
they design their own cover, they lay the book out, uh, they get reviews, they send out press releases, and and then they have a book at the end of it with their name as edited by on the copyright page. So I just I think it's really cool, and it's kind of exciting for me to be uh, going along with them and teaching them. And of course, there are there are lectures and stuff too about copyright or printing presses and distribution houses and things like that. All you need to know in the publishing field, but it's just really, I think it's a very practical program and it's, it's one year. It starts it, the next group will start this July and then it will end the following July and it's all online except for two weeks in person in the summer uh, pandemic permitting. So it's, I think it's exciting. You get a master's degree at the end of it. What are the prerequisites for it? And actually, first question is: Are you still have openings? And then, what are the what are the prerequisites? Well, right now we are open for for applicants for this next summer. So we're we're about half full. We can only take a certain number of students because I'm I'm only allowed to treat, to teach a certain number, and so we're half full. But we are open, and it'll probably fill up come around May or something like that. It, it just depends on how fast they come in. And the prerequisites are you have to have a, a bachelor's degree in something. It doesn't have to have anything to do with publishing. My own bachelor's degree is in astronomy. So, you know, that that doesn't, I, I can trace you the path of how I got from astronomy to publishing. But um, <laughs> but if, you, if you've got a bachelor's degree in civil engineering, you, you still qualify to, to go into it. And you get a, a MA, a Master of Arts, when you're done with it. Uh, the cost the total cost is i think twenty thousand dollars something like that it's it's which is not that expensive for a full-on master's degree and it takes you one year the easiest way my own website is called is wordfire w-o-r-d-f-i-r-e wordfire.com and i've got a whole thing up on the top of the homepage that says publishing master's degree so there's links and everything there rather than me like blurting out this long url about how to find it so if you look at that you look at the college uh the campus itself it's in the colorado mountains so if you you have to come out in person for two weeks in the colorado mountains in july well you know there are worse places to go i just love it it's a beautiful <laughs> it's like right out of a, a hollywood set had this beautiful campus and beautiful buildings with red roofs and and um, statues around the courtyards and you know it's if, if i had to make up a fantasy college campus uh western colorado university would would fit the bill wow well that's impressive and that that's i mean the fact that you've taken your i guess paying it forward up to a whole new level because you've been very you're one of the, the most dedicated writers that I've ever known based upon when I first uh, got to know you when you were, you used to say like you like the, the Writers of the Future contest because it forced you to get that entry in, get the next story written by the by the deadline. And so that was the first thing, okay, this guy's really uh, dedicated to writing. And then when you told me also the story about most kids, when they're, what do they want for their birthday or for Christmas, they want a, a bike or they want you know, something like that, you wanted a typewriter. So, okay, good. It's, it's been a long-term goal for you to be a, a writer, and you've absolutely succeeded with that. As a major international best-selling author, the, uh, starting your own publishing house, Wordfire Press, and then now most recently uh, getting your master's degree so yourself so you can teach that program. That's, that's serious kudos to you. Right, and, and 
when I was started, I, I gave a talk at Superstars a couple of years ago, and and I'll only give it once because I could barely get through it, and I broke down in tears a couple of times. But it basically going back and thinking of all the people who were my mentors, the people who were big name authors that somehow saw something in me that they they bent over backward to help me out. And you know, Dean Kuntz was one of my big mentors. I was just this new writer who with barely any credentials. And and we had dinner with Dean and his wife a bunch of times. He gave me all kinds of advice on contracts and submissions. And and uh, Harlan Ellison was another one who like, really, really helped me out at the right time. And Robert Silverberg, who's another contest judge, Silverberg gave me this this incredible business lecture when my wife and I took him out to dinner once and he went on a, at great length about you know incorporating and and what you can legally write off and what you can't write off and and see all of this stuff is is what you don't want to pay attention to as a writer because you want to write about dragons and and spaceships and whatever it is that you want to write stories about but if you can't pay the bills, then you don't have any time to write. And so it's very important. Like, and, and also, you don't want to be do something stupid and sign away all of your copyrights to some predator. And you don't want to um, be taken advantage of in the, the publishing or business world. So you, you do need to know what you're doing. And it's an important part uh, of your growth as a writer. And the more I got to thinking about all these people that spent a great deal of time and energy helping me out. Well, now I'm now the shoes. Well, the shoes on the foot forward, I guess, because they don't need my help, but I need to help people in the next generation. And I just got some heartwarming, uh, heartwarming letter today from one of my students about how I had helped her uh, solve a big difficult problem in her life, and that she was very thankful for it. And you know, those are the kind of things that you really take with you. It's much more so than than somebody putting a starred review on Amazon that says, I like this book. Now, that's good, good too. I'm not going to complain about it. But, <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> but but it is, it's sort of a special thing to know that you've, you've helped somebody or changed their life by, um, you know, some of the, just my basic business classes that I tell people, that one 45-minute talk that I give could have saved them two years of headaches if they had not heard it and made a stupid mistake instead. So it's useful. Yeah, that's absolutely true. It's interesting you talked about copyrights because um, Elwin Hubbard, as you know, was a very prolific writer in the 30s and 40s. And he made a point of getting the, the rights back to his stories, which was very rare back in those days from um, Street and Smith and the various publishers. So he was able to retain the rights to his stories, which um, that's, he, he definitely saw the importance of that, of the business side of being a writer, because, you know, that's, if you're going to make your living at that, and he's, he saw other ancillary products, because some of his stuff was sold for TV rights and um, radio for the radio, radio shows that were done off of his, uh, of his works back there in the 50s. I'm curious. So if it is important to have that information. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious if you know yourself, because things, like when he was, being published in Astounding Stories or Unknown or whatever magazine it was. I have no clue what they asked for in the 1940s or when they were. But when he sold a story to Unknown, did 
they traditionally just buy the copyright to it? Or like if I sell a story to Asimov's right now, they don't buy the copyright. I keep the copyright. But uh, the old magazines, a lot of times they were probably predatory. I don't I don't have yeah. any idea. <clears throat> they were. So it was it was not common at all. And so he had to negotiate and, and, and haggle with the uh, owners to be able to get at Street and Smith to be able to get the rights back to his various magazines articles because it was it wasn't just astounding um, and unknown but it was also the various uh, western publications adventure publications um, mystery some romance so you know he just made it a point to you know to get back and maintain copyrights because he saw that's an important as an author what do you have that's you know it's your you know your ip is is your ip and if you don't if you don't protect it then you don't have it you know so that's an important important thing that what you teach now is is quite vital and then you're also talking about the various you know letters that you get there's this one sequence that i remember seeing with cl moore um catherine moore she was one of our first judges too for rise of the future but she was a, a major pulp fiction writer with uh her husband henry kuttner several letters back and forth between um Warren hubbard and uh, cl moore about you know he was like coaching her on to become a writer and, and her response back to him that he would take time to actually help a, an aspiring writer. And that's something too that um, I think is, is really important. That's obviously why he created the, the competition in 1983. And um, several of the articles that you, you know, you and the other judges have um, referred to over the, the years in the, in the online workshop were written by him in the thirties and forties to be able to provide that that helping hand and it's still vital data. It's, it's important now as it was back then. So anyway, so it's just, it's important and it's something I think more so in science fiction and fantasy, the whole thing of paying it forward is um, very much a, uh, a part of, of the mindset of the genre. Well, and I, I think as far as science fiction and fantasy goes that, and I can't speak to like the huge broader genres, but you know, all of us science fiction and fantasy writers are are diehard science fiction fantasy readers too. It's not like we just go, well, I'm going to write a user's manual today and that's my writing. That I've read science fiction since I could read. I love science fiction and fantasy and I I keep going through that. And so I consider the other writers who write the books that I love to read, I don't want to consider them my enemies or my competition. They're my they're my colleagues and for every great book that um, Eric Flint writes, that means that's another great book that Kevin Anderson gets to read because you know we, we wanna help each other do things. And science fiction has always been a tight knit community so that I can literally, I mean, I, right now I probably literally, if you found a name of some writer that you wanted to get in touch with, I probably either know that writer or know somebody who knows the writer so i can get get to him or her and say can you give me advice on how you created this religion system on your jungle planet you know and and those are the kind of questions that writer asks writers actually talk about we don't talk about sports or anything we talk about things like that uh right, right. So, so it's it's really a big support group and a, a mutual admiration society and we really do like reading each other's stuff and and well, of course, you know, like like everything, there are politics in science fiction. So you've got, you know, some fist fights and brawls going on. But you know, that's the way 
that's the way life is, I guess. Indeed it is. So um, talk about the difference between writing science fiction and fantasy, please. Well, see, I've, I read broadly. So I'll, like, I'll grab a fantasy novel, I'll grab a science fiction novel, I'll grab a horror novel. And I just, as long as it's a great story, I'm perfectly happy with it. But they really are different animals. It's kind of like um, just because you're a good cook doesn't mean that you're a good Italian food cook or a good Mexican food cook or a good Chinese food cook, something like that. There's different recipes, different techniques. And writing science fiction and fantasy really do require different strengths. Um, I'm mainly known as a science fiction guy. My, my degree's in astronomy and physics, and and I kind of grew up with my telescope, and I, I wanted to understand what galaxies were and nebulas and supernovas, and, and uh, I can actually explain why or why not faster than light drives work and all that kind of things. So I, I always had a scientific mindset, and I've written so much science fiction. But I remember when I started to do my first big fantasy trilogy, I had a conversation with Jerry Purnell, who is one of our uh, Writers of the Future judges. And Jerry um, uh, was kind of blustery and opinionated. And he's, he kind of went off on fantasy is so easy to write because you don't have to follow any rules. You just make everything up. And science fiction has to be bound by science and rules. And after I started working on my, my fantasies, I was scratching my head going, whoa, there's a lot more work here. You don't just make everything up. You've got to put it in. And and in a certain way, I'm finding science fiction a little bit easier because you can wave your hands and just say a, a warp speed faster than light drive without having to explain it. And you know that there's communication systems and you know that there's materials processing and all this stuff. Let me give an example because I my big first my first big fantasy trilogy or the uh, the one I'm doing right now, A Spine of the Dragon is the first one that came out in that trilogy about a year year and a half ago. So you've got people with sailing ships and you've got kingdoms arming their armies with with swords and shields and everything like that. Well, if you're in science fiction, you just say everybody's got blasters, everybody's got weapons, they've got spaceships, they've got a flyer that can cruise over the city. But if you're in a fantasy world and one of your countries is is like Saudi Arabia, it's a, it's a, a like a Arabian Nights kind of fantasy. So there's a lot of desert around and people are riding camels, but you want them to have a fleet of sailing ships that are going to go explore the world. Okay, how do you build the sailing ships? Where does the wood come from? They don't have forests. They don't. Where does the metal come from? If you've got your army that all needs to have a sword, you've got to have enough mines that are digging out the iron that are smelting it and, and blacksmiths that are making it into steel, which are then forging it into, into sword blades. And then you've got to manufacture leather and metal armor for these hundreds and hundreds of fighters that that just magically appear on screen in a fantasy movie, but somebody's got to build all that stuff. And, and in fantasy, as I'm plotting and doing my stories, you have to stop and think, okay, do they have gunpowder or not? Because that changes all of warfare. If you have like flintlocks or cannons and things like that, or if they don't have gunpowder, well then that changes everything. 
Think about your communication. We, we right now we're on Zencaster recording this and I'm in Colorado and you're in LA and that's how we're getting this done. But if you're in a, a Lord of the Rings or a Game of Thrones kind of kind of world, say you're, you're, you're Frodo Baggins sitting in the Shire and the great king of Numenor has been assassinated how it, it can take a year before that news works its way across the land. Whereas when you're plotting an exciting story, you don't really want to wait a year. You would rather send an email. You'd rather get something <laughs> faster. And so that becomes a real problem when you have a big epic fantasy that sprawls across continents is how does the person on the West Coast know what just that an atomic bomb just went off on the East Coast? Well, you don't generally have too many atomic bombs in fantasy fiction, but um, but you know some great the, the dragon attacked the capital city on the east coast. Well, even at a breakneck pace, riding horse after horse and switching mounts when they're exhausted, I I couldn't tell you how long it would take for a an early pioneer to make it from New York City to the site of Los Angeles right now. And provided they even provided they even made it, right. And so, what what happens if the one courier that the guy dispatches with this urgent news um, gets killed in a bear attack seven days out? You know, it's, yeah. there's all kinds of things in fantasy that that are are drawbacks that you have to worry about. Now, any any good writer can always figure out. Well, a drawback just means a plot twist, and you got to figure out how to solve it. But it that's one of the things that that struck me with fantasy that all of a sudden all these questions came out like where did they get the metal for this and where are all the wood to build these thousand ships that they're made, that they're building and you know you don't just press print and come up with a thousand wooden sailing ships it takes years and years and years to build these things and in fantasy you just snap your fingers come on well, you obviously have this powerful wizard that has his ship building spell or something like exactly. that. Exactly. Um, so that's that's a little bit different. And and you know, Brandon Sanderson would probably go on at, at greater length about more of the like the moral underpinnings of fantasy or Orson Scott Carr, the moral underpinnings of fantasy versus science fiction, that there's there the big generalizations here, but but science fiction tends to be more uh, sort of like goal driven and sort of technological, technophilic. I guess is the big word for it. That that we like Star Trek. That technology will solve what what we need to have solved, and and we'll figure out a cure for this, or we'll we'll build a defense against that. Whereas fantasy again, big, broad strokes. Fantasy is often more about um, the human reaction to things. And, and does the person have the the strength of will in his heart to carry the, the ring all the way to Mordor? And it, there's just a different feel to fantasy than there is to science fiction. Um, but I love them both and I've written them both. So that's, that's kind of, I, I like exercising my muscles in different ways. So if I'm writing and I, I've also, I'm writing these giant science fiction, like Dune novels with Brian Herbert. And I write in my own big Spine of the Dragon epic fantasy novels. And then I'll turn around and I'll write a really, really silly Dan Shamble zombie PI humorous horror mystery. And I just, 
I like to do different things so that it doesn't feel like I'm getting tired of what I'm doing. Cause I'm, I'm, I approach each book with like super excitement and, you know, I'm, I'm just now in the next couple of days, we'll be wrapping up and sending in the final, final, final production ready manuscript for the lady of Caladan written with Brian Herbert. It's the brand new Dune book that we're working on. And then I'm going to turn to my, my last clockwork steampunk fantasy adventure that uh, Neil Peart and I plotted together before he died about a year ago. So switching from big epic fantasy to a big Dune novel to steampunk fantasy adventure, I think it helps keep me interested and enthusiastic in what I'm doing. So that brings up a good point. Actually, a couple of questions I've gotten of this. Now, do you ever... Are you, do you try to keep it like somewhat of a, a purist? So you've got science fiction, science fiction, fantasy is fantasy, your mystery or your, your humorous uh, zombie PI. Do you keep them as separate genres or do you ever do a thing like where you combine science fiction and fantasy to be able to get some type of a, of a, um, of a new sub, sub, sub genre? To go back to the cooking metaphor, it's like your fusion cuisine, right? Right. Uh, it's, you know, Star Wars, which I've written a lot of Star Wars, Star Wars is not rigorously scientifically accurate. It's kind of more like a fantasy uh, quest adventure, but it happens to be set in in space with um, hyperdrives and blasters and things. Uh, Dune itself is very rigorous science fiction because Frank Herbert really worked out the the world building, the planetary details, the political structure and everything. But it looks like a big fantasy with emperors and dukes and barons and counts and and kind of medieval settings and and no computers and not really super glitzy technology. So I think you can you can change some of the window dressing a lot. You can you can add things and because I read widely in different genres, I find that you can take like new tools for your toolkit by reading outside of your genre. Like for instance, I had a science fiction novel called Blindfold where a serial killer on a space station is what sort of Hannibal Lecter is held in a prison on a space station and he gets out. So it's very suspenseful and you got to track him down. And I read a bunch of Dean Kuntz books and studied how he does these pulse-pounding, intense, suspenseful scenes. And I used that kind of writing in a science fiction novel, which you wouldn't normally see in a science fiction novel. By reading some big historical novels like Shogun or Ken Follett's Pillars of the Earth and um, Larry McMurtry's Lonesome Dove, you get, you understand these big, huge epics and how the stories are put together with multi-generational casts. And and uh, you learn from that. And then I turn it into my, uh, I've got a, by now, I think it's 12 volumes long, science fiction, space opera epic, the, the saga of seven sons. So I try to learn from everything that I read and I try to read different things so that I I learn different things. Okay, that makes sense. One comment you made to me, this has been, I don't know, several years ago. Uh, you talked about, when we were talking about um, Battlefield Earth, when we were doing the re-release of it in 2016, you made a comment about, you know, just 
you got tired reading because it was just it was so so much energy it pulled out of you. And then when I was between talking with you and Brandon Sanderson, it's this, it's the concept of the short sentences that picks up the uh, the pace the. Uh, you know, as you're the, the energy of, of the story, the short sentences as compared to longer sentences in terms of a writing style. Can you comment on that for people that are listening? Well, see, that's also if you're writing fast paced, um, I mean, and I, I want it fast paced. I want it. It doesn't have to be brainless pulp fiction nonstop all day, every day. But I really also don't want to read a paragraph that is five pages long about the the underpinnings of social unrest and political structures in in medieval France. Uh, you know, there the literary fiction tends to be more introspective and uh, more focused on the writing style and um, let's just say. They're not trying to, they don't have that audience from Monty Python's Flying Circus yelling, on with it, on with it, when things get too boring. Right. Uh, and I think you should do short paragraphs. I think you should do short sentences. Not not universally. I mean, I'm not saying every sentence has to be that way. But if I look at a at a page and I've got like one paragraph that fills an entire page, well, that's just not easy on the eye that as the reader looks at that and it's like they just got a big brick wall that they have to climb and i think it's much better to break that up into several smaller paragraphs because it gives the the reader like more handholds for climbing that wall and well there's a metaphor uh and <laughs> uh and, and i just I have always, always, always been a storyteller. I I have very good prose. My Algis Budras and like he did a professional review uh, in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. He reviewed my very first novel back in 1988, and I've never forgotten the quote that he said. He he wrote down that that Anderson's prose is so transparent you forget your reading. And I thought that's like the most perfect compliment that I've ever heard because I don't want you to pause and think, what beautiful arrangement of commas Kevin just did. I want <laughs> you to forget that you're reading and be transported into this into this world where the characters are having uh, great adventures and and you know I want you to go along for the ride rather than um, pat me on the back for my masterful use of adverbs or something. Right. So is there any validity in terms of like really controlling your, your audience, the reader, so that you can do the the short, the small paragraph, short sentences, and then to like slow it down so they can catch their breath, do the longer, um, and then pick it up again to be able to control the, the speed of the, of the story? Is that, does that make sense? Yeah, I've got um, a good friend of mine was Terry Goodkind. He's an epic fantasy writer. He just passed away last year. And we were talking because he writes gigantic doorstop epic fantasies too. Right. And we were. Which I happen to love. Yeah. We were kind of talking about um, plotting and doing things. And he, he said something to me that I, I kind of kept in the back of my mind as it was beautiful advice. He, he said, for every gigantic battle scene and every dragon you're fighting and all this great stuff, 
you got to stop and have a catch your breath chapter every once in a while. And I thought, what a great way of phrasing that. That was, that was a pretty cool uh, writing lesson. And so here I am with a hundred and some novels published and going, oh, I just learned something today. That's, that's the joy of this, to, to learn that here's a new technique to change and fine tune something. Now, just on a paragraph by paragraph basis, I don't know that I would ever take the time to really look at it and go, it's been four paragraphs of action. I should have one paragraph of introspection. But in a chapter outline sense, I think you can, you can look at nonstop car chases and, and gunfights and constant stuff going on. You, you need to have sort of a pause to reflect on everything that just happened so that you can re- recharge your batteries and then go off and fight some more dragons or shoot some more gangsters or whatever it is that's your, your story. You're doing. Yeah. So with today's market, are you finding that science fiction or fantasy does better or is it kind of like they're both like going great guns? Well, it's kind of hard to differentiate so much like that because well, here's the exciting thing that's been happening with, you know, it used to be you could really go into a bookstore and, and while well, they would put science fiction and fantasy in one cluster of, of shelves, but publishers would actually put a label on the spine that said science fiction or fantasy. But thanks to uh, indie writers and Amazon and keywords and categories and all that kind of stuff, you can now really differentiate and, and find like exactly the flavor of book that you as a reader are looking for. That you don't have to go to fantasy, you can go to steampunk vampire fantasy or Instead of science fiction, you can do military science fiction. You can do psychological science fiction. You can do space opera science fiction. And, you know, I noticed in the the music industry, because people's tastes in what music they listen to tends to be very, very specific. And when when we were kids, John, there was like the one or two radio stations you could listen to, and you just listened to whatever the American Top Forty rock and roll was that was on, and sure. that meant that meant everything from easy listening to yacht rock to ACDC to whatever it is that they wanted. But now, of course, you don't need to do that. You can listen to uh, death metal. You can listen to um, I I've. I like Jackson Brown, and I found out that that's in a category called yacht rock because apparently that's what you listen to on your yacht. Uh, I don't have a yacht, but I still listen to it. Um, but these the differentiations, and and I found by following Amazon's recommendations, like, well, you like this album, you might like this one, and it kind of narrowed narrowed me down, and I I find that I have a great affinity for something that's called Northern European goth chick metal. And and it's like operatic women singing with heavy metal guitars and symphonic accompaniment. And who would ever have even thought that's a thing? But I love this stuff and it's I wouldn't have found it if it wasn't for various keywords guiding me. Like if you like that one, then you like this one. And, and it helped me identify exactly what I'm looking for. And, and fiction is the same way. It's not fantasy, it's urban fantasy, or it's erotic urban fantasy, or it's hard-boiled urban fantasy, or what, and you can actually, 
which is good because there's so many billions of books out there to read. You don't want to waste your time on stuff that's not your your cup of tea. Right. So I I actually think it it's really you'd really have to do some big tent kind of adding up to find out whether science fiction or fantasy is selling better because there's so many different micro camps all over the place that, um, and, and, you know, if, if you're writing steampunk vampire erotica, then you want to know how well steampunk vampire erotica is selling. You don't really care how well fantasy is selling. So. Okay. That makes sense. Now, You've got novels and there's short fiction too. And as a publisher with Wordfire Press, how is it like you've got the, the short story, you've got the novelette, novella, and novel, <clears throat> and then the and then the uh, super monsters. So, is there any particular re, you know returning to like in the short story with the anthologies? Because it's I've see I'm starting to see more and more anthologies of the short fiction. I don't know if it's because of people wanting to have something they can read in one sitting as a transport and going to, to a destination or something. But what have you observed in terms of, of uh, interest level in the consumer as a publisher? Well, one of the interesting things that when you walked into a bookstore, I think the, the big fat Robert Jordan novels, the Terry Goodkind novels, the Brandon Sanderson, the, the, the doorstop epic fantasies, the Game of Thrones kind of books, People like to have that because you could you could you know, sit down and just bury yourself in this book for months. But I feel that shorter and shorter books are becoming more popular now with the uh, indie publishers and indie writers that they readers want to have something more frequently. They don't want a seven hundred page book every third year. They want to have something every couple of months. And so if you give them a 60,000 word book, which is what like old science fiction paperbacks were always the little skinny paperbacks. And we've kind of gotten away from publishing shorter books like that. But I think now that's a more valuable way that, that instead of, instead of me writing one 700 page book and publish it every 18 months or so, viably for, for business purposes, it would be better for me to write three 80,000 word books and bring them out every four months or something like that, just to kind of break it up and make it more like a, a serial. But, but that's this month. Who knows what is going to be next month? They, they change constantly. Right. So now when a, when a person writes like a shorter novel versus a longer novel, is it paid per word or is it just a contract negotiated? Okay. I need uh, I'm going to pay you this much money for an 80,000 or a 60,000 or a hundred thousand word novel. How does that work these days? Well, in a, for a, a contract from a publisher, they will, they will pay you a certain amount for, for the novel. And they don't, you're supposed to give them a novel. That's a certain length. If they contract for a 90,000 word book, then it, you know, not exactly 90,000 words, but don't give them a 200,000 word book because that's not what they're expecting. Right. Uh, they, they, they need to budget their paper and printing and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but you don't get paid by the word for your novel. You get paid by the, by the project. Okay. So then, because I'm, I'm asking these questions for the sake of, you know, the people that are listening here in terms of what they should expect 
you know, so if they're going to go after with a, an indie indie publishing, then it's going to be like, what are what are some of the the common things they need to watch for? And it's like, okay, I want to be able to pitch my 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 book, and you know, so this, I'm the first time out, so I'm willing to accept you know ten dollars for my book on on banking on the facts and sell great, and then on the next book I'll sell it for a million dollars. Well, with with indie publishing, a lot of it now is more of a a co-op thing or a shared shared thing that that you the author wrote the book and the publisher expends the expenses of cover art and typesetting and proofreading and marketing and all that stuff and then you split a much higher share of the royalties if you sell a book to um, bantam books or simon and schuster or something like that you're likely to get something like eight percent royalties but if you work with an indie publisher you'll probably get 40% royalties or 50% or wh whatever that publisher gives just because it's more of a, a shared effort, but there's a lot less money up front. Uh, it, but uh, I, mean, I don't want to beat a dead horse here, but going back to like my publishing degree, it is so important right now that people who are going to get into this understand how publishing works and understand how the business works rather than just, I'm going to write a book and hope that somebody treats me well when they publish it. And in fact, a lot of it is people are publishing their own books. They, so that's what independent indie publishing means, independent publishing, that a lot of people are publishing their own book. So you're the author, you're the publisher, you're the cover designer, you're the interior book designer, you're the marketer, you're the editor, or you contract people to do that sort of stuff. Uh, then, of course, you keep all the money that it earns. So if it earns a million dollars, you earn a million dollars. If it earns five dollars, you earn five dollars. So and sadly, that's a more likely scenario for a lot of books. But that's why it is so, so much more important for you to understand the industry now than it than it was in the past, because you don't have so many people who will hold your hand and do it for you. It's much more of a one man band operation instead of a a gigantic corporation doing everything for you got it now i got it on your master's program and that's if a person can do that they have to absolutely do that have you written any books or do you have any things that you've that you've assembled on the business of writing that you've done um the the workshop that we give every year at writers of the future and we give it at dragon con and we give it at superstars uh Rebecca and I wrote that up into sort of a, a full-on book version of it called Million Dollar Professionalism. So think of million and then think of professionalism. Million Dollar Professionalism for the writer. And that's kind of the, the workshop that we give put down on paper. And I do another one called Million Dollar Productivity about how to increase your writing productivity and things like that. If you Our, our website is wordfirepress.com. And we've got just go under my name. We've got about a hundred and some different authors there. But if you look up my stuff, I've got a bunch of writing books on there that you can, that you can look up. So that would be some good advice for you. That'd be great. So now we've, we've pretty much focused just on this, in this area, the difference between writing science fiction and fantasy. Anything about that? I should have asked that I didn't. Well, I, I, I don't worry too much about the genre labels on it. I'm focused on the book that I'm trying to write and 
I think writers should too. I don't, I don't think they should um, dissect it and label it too much. I think they should just write a really good book and that's the most important thing. Okay. So writing a book, do you outline it first or do you just have a basic concept of what you want? Do you take it all the way through to the end and then like pull it together or how, how do you, how does a book materialize for you? Oh my gosh. I, because I write these, these big complicated doorstop epic things, I <laughs> absolutely plot them in great detail before I going. And it, it's like, I, I don't understand the writer who will do it all by the seat of their pants that if they're going to take, they're going to sit down and write a 500 page book. It's, it's like heading off onto a big road trip without seeing that your gas tank is full and not having a roadmap. I, I just, or, or another actually more, more careful thing is you don't have a, a movie production that builds the sets and starts filming a movie without having a script. And I, I think you really should have at least some basic outline of who your characters are, what they're going to do, what your book is about. Now, I, I will point out, though, that all of this stuff, whether you figure out the details while you're writing it or whether you figure it out beforehand, you still can come up with a really good book. It's just if you don't plan ahead of time, you're going to end up writing down a bunch of dead ends and you're going to throw away a bunch of chapters and you're going to have to rewrite something to make it all fit together at the end. And I would, you know, the old cliche about the measure twice and cut once, I, yeah. I think spend the time uh, to, to map out your book. You won't write chapter 43 that you realize, oh, I just spent three days on that and I just have to throw it away because it doesn't fit. I, I would rather know it doesn't fit before I write it rather than after I write it. For sure. For sure. Well, this has been great talking with you, Kevin. So one last thing here. For a person who's not familiar with your your work, and you might have a couple different answers for this, what do you recommend as an introductory book for Kevin J. Anderson? Well, my my absolute favorite book of all the ones that I've written was one of the steampunk ones with Neil Peart, and that's called Clockwork Lives. Um, it, its companion book is Clockwork Angels, which actually came out first, but you you can read them in either order. And just this morning, I finished the audiobook rereading Clockwork Lives. And I kind of sit back and think, that really was a pretty good book. I'm very proud of that. So I'll, I'll mention that one as just a general one. Um, my Saga of Seven Sons is the huge space opera epic that I've done. And there's a sequel trilogy and, and other things. So if you like to read uh, like The Expanse or Star Trek or Dune or things like that. The first Saga of Seven Sons book is is a really good one. And just if you like reading like funny stuff like Spaceballs or The Naked Gun, I, I get a kick out of my Dan Shamble Zombie PI series. And and yeah, oh, they're fun. They're definitely fun. Good place to put in a plug because I have a uh, on WordFire.com, which is where you'd go to look up the the master's program. Uh, you can sign up for my readers group, and I'll give you a free collection of all the Dan Shamble short stories, and you get a free audiobook of one of the stories that I wrote with Neil Peart, the uh, steampunk drummer story, uh, and newsletters and stuff like that. So uh, that's a great way for you to sample for free if you want to try a couple of things from mine. And there's a, it says, join our readers group or something like that, and you'll get, 
You get a free collection of Dan Chamble stories and the audio story of the Percussor's Tale with Neil Peart. And I, I think we have some fun newsletters with cat pictures and my mountain climbs and hikes and what I'm cooking and what I'm writing and just try to give you a snapshot of what a writer's life is rather than just, it's not a buy my book, buy my book, buy my book kind of boring newsletter. It's, it's fun stuff. No, there's definitely fun newsletters. Most of the people at the office receive it and share it around. Good. Yes. Well, thank you. And thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We've also been syndicated on the United Public Radio Network where you can find these podcasts as well. Writers and Illustrators of the Future are contests created by Owen Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. Again, thank you very much, Kevin. Thanks a lot, John. Wish I could be there in person, but we'll do it as soon as we can. Absolutely. Hopefully this fall with a Volume 37 event. Thanks, John. Thanks. Thanks.